This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Is this just a political fight, some political theatre? A lot of people saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. It is too easy just to blame Brexit. Surely it can't be anything means bye-bye-bye. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio, 5pm in the city at the close today. A day of gains up by 0.33%, a gain of a third of 1% on the equity benchmark in Frankfurt, Germany as well. In the FX market, weaker dollar in G10 and across most of EM, sterling stronger by about a quarter of 1%. Cable up to 134.28. Much more on the market action in just a moment. Let's get you some top stories shall we? It's Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much, Jonathan Farrow. Two UK retailers are set to open new European outposts to protect themselves from potential Brexit fallout. C&J Clark Limited, that's the seller of Clark Shoes, plans to open a distribution centre in continental Europe to shield itself from potential tariffs. And the Hut Group, which sells beauty, wellness and luxury products online, is constructing a, constructing a facility in Poland that's set to employ more than 1,000 people within the the next two years. Well, let's see if this translates over to European Airlines. Delta Airlines dragging down American Airlines today after the carrier trimmed its profit outlook, citing the rising price of jet fuel. Fuel prices have risen about 12% since the beginning of the quarter. Barclays says the chances of Italy leaving the European Union are lower than an England victory at the Soccer World Cup that's about to kick off in Russia. Last time England won the World Cup, by the way, 1966. Latest from the news desk, Jonathan Farrell, back to you. Charlie, thank you. Um much more from Charlie in about 29 minutes' time when he comes back. I want to begin with the top story in markets and more fuel for European bond bears. The ECB chief economist Peter Prade confirming that they'll debate an exit from QE at next week's meeting. It's clear that next, next week the governing council will have to make this assessment, the assessment of whether progress so far has been sufficient to warrant a gradual unwinding of our net asset purchases. And in making its assessment, I think it's very important to consider the underlying growth of the economy and to what extent actually uh, this growth is passing through to wages and price formation. Off the back of that, the euro stronger, the European bond market lower. To discuss, Richard Jones, FX and rate strategist at Bloomberg, joins me now. Damien Sassauer also joining me, EM credit strategist for, for Bloomberg. Richard Jones, to you out of Berlin. Kind of interesting that we set this up. Now, a couple of months ago, if I'd said the June meeting would be used to discuss this, you would have said, no brainer, makes sense. QE, the guidance so far is 30 billion until September. It's different in the sense that I think some people might have thought the ECB would take a step back, Rich, because of what's happening in Italy. I see no sign of that. Do you? Not at all. They've set up next week as a really important meeting, which, which look, we're getting updated stack forecast next week as well, John. So, so that makes June an important enough meeting to begin with. Uh, but you're right. They're, they're not really – it doesn't look like Italy is going to derail uh, what, they, uh, what they want to be doing in terms of sort of taking baby steps to slow march to normalization. And it also, the other thing I think that's interesting, too, is that what they're basically saying is that, look, there was a uh, first quarter soft patch in the economy. 
by by actually pressing ahead as as it looks like they're going to next week, they're actually downplaying that as they have done all along. Um, and and I think the thing to, to remember about next week is the, the the previous staff forecast that we got in March assumed a euro dollar rate of one twenty three for two thousand seventeen and Brent price at sixty five dollars. Now, we're far away from both of those levels in both of those different markets. So as a result, I think we can probably expect the inflation forecasts to be edged higher by the, by the, by the ECB staff. So therefore, I think, you know, there's, there's every reason to believe that they will, they will make that uh, baby step towards yeah. uh, normalization next week. Edge higher, though, Rich. I'm looking at the numbers. These are the estimates. In fact, they're the real numbers. They're going to be released next week. We'll get an update. But June 15th, when the next Eurozone print comes out, the final read for CPI, we were looking at 1.1%, for core and headline inflation. They're nowhere near rich. Well, the, the thing is, the core inflation at one2 for the euro area um, has started to stabilize and started to edge higher. I think if you look at what's going on in Germany, core inflation is about 1.6%. Uh, wage increases are starting to take hold. And that's the interesting thing about what Pratt said today is that, you know, they see wage increases starting to, to take effect. And so that gives them a little bit more confidence about actual durable inflation starting to build. Now, they're nowhere near that yet. Yeah. But I mean, in six months' time, that might be a lot closer to that target. And if that's the case, it makes sense for them to sort of ease off on the accelerator when it comes to, to monetary policy accommodation. Damien, I wonder how difficult this will be for emerging markets. The Federal Reserve is doing its thing, hiking interest rates, rolling down a balance sheet, and the ECB just seems determined to back away too. Is EM prepared for this? Well, it's starting to, right? I mean, we saw India just this morning, right? I mean, they raised 25 bips. We've got a, quite a few central bank meetings coming up after the Fed meets on uh, on the 13th of this month. And, you know, by all accounts, we see most of the central banks uh, hiking rates. I mean, we see, I mean, my goodness, I think we have no fewer than five of the eight meetings. We could very easily see 25 bip rate hikes at each Interesting. Of them. Yeah. And we saw the intervention from Brazil in the last 24 hours as well. How much of this is a local story? How much of it is just pressure coming from central bank policy and policy full stop from abroad? Well, you know, I mean, if you just look at the big four central bank balance sheets, the Fed, ECB, BOJ, and PBOC, right, what you see is like for the first time, um, you know, in, in recent memory, you see it actually coming off. Now, a lot of that is the fact that the dollar strengthening is is really a mark-to-market, you know, kind of accounting measure on uh, on the ECB, BOJ, and PBOC. But, but you do see uh, conditions tightening, right? And that could drive rates a little bit higher. And, um, and I think that is indeed what we're seeing. And I think the good thing here in EM is that you see central banks trying to get ahead of the curve, right? You see yeah. the Philippines, you see Indonesia, and I think that's what India saw as well, and that's why they moved um, following, you know, the blowout GDP print. Rich, do you see a Federal Reserve or an ECB, for that matter, that is sensitive to international developments? Well, I think uh, probably because the Fed would be a little bit more sensitive to it because the dollar is the world reserve currency and a lot of foreign borrowing uh, in uh, in those emerging markets is in dollars. But, you know, neither central bank can be completely immune to what's going on elsewhere, especially in the ECB. If you look at at, uh, the trade balance and exports from from Europe, I think global growth and coordinated global global growth has been one of the drivers of that 2017 success story. If that starts to ease back, then, yeah, it does affect the ECB. But I'd say primarily the Fed because the dollar is the reserve currency of the world. We're going to spend a little bit more time a little bit later in the program talking about EM specifically. But, Rich, just to wrap things up in the European bond market, Bunds fell out of bed today, yields up by almost 10 basis points on a 10-year to a grand total of 0.465%. But outside of Bunds, Italian bonds getting battered as well. 
looking at the situation in Europe right now, it looks like, given where we are and given where the ECB is going, are you sure we've had a decent repricing on the European bond market yet, Rich? Uh, I think that uh, there's still more to go. And I think that you're right to highlight just how low. I mean, that 10-year bond yield is laughably low, even with the big move, right? Um, and even with the, with, with the volatility and the sharp spike higher in Italian borrowing costs, compare them to history, and they're really quite, they're, 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 they're minimal, right? So I think there is more to go. And I think that's why the ECB is being as deliberate as they are in, in, in forecasting or, or, or foreshadowing to the market what they're going to be doing. And listen, you know, we're, we're still probably minimal a year away from actual rates going up, and the ECB will maintain a big balance sheet going into next year. But, but yeah, there's, there's scope for more repricing, and that's why the ECB is going to take it slowly, as they have been, and communicate, I think, pretty effectively, as they have done all along the way into next year. Richard Jones, great to catch up with you, mate. He's going to stick with us. FX and rate strategist joining us out of Berlin for Bloomberg, and Damien Sassauer at EM, credit strategist for Bloomberg, staying with us as well. Next up on the programme, a little bit more on emerging markets, an op-ed from the Indian Central Bank Governor in the Financial Times I want to draw a little bit of attention to. It is a plea for help from the United States. So the United States has been accused of exporting volatility on several fronts. Um, One of them you might not have heard too much about. That conversation's next. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. The Indian Central Bank Governor, Urja Patel, writing in the Financial Times, given the rapid rise in the size of the US deficit, the Fed must respond by slowing plans to shrink its balance sheet. If it does not, Treasuries will absorb such a large share of dollar liquidity that a crisis in the rest of the dollar bond markets is inevitable. Damien Sasser with me from Bloomberg, Richard Jones as well. Um, Damien, your thoughts on that? Well, it's an interesting quote from the central bank governor of the RBI. Well, it is. I mean, considering India does not issue any dollar bonds, they must be talking about U.S. demand or U.S. Uh, institutional demand for IGBs, right? And, um, and and that's been significant. There's no question about it. But you're right. It is kind of interesting that you've got a, <laughs> a central bank from uh, from an emerging market basically pleading with the U.S. saying, please don't uh, flood the market with treasuries because nobody there's going to be less demand for, <laughs> for EM bonds. So basically, Richard Jones, we have a situation where the U.S. has been accused of exporting volatility on three fronts now um one is trade which we've discussed a lot one is monetary and and the third one is fiscal this idea that fiscal stimulus in the united states is not net positive for emerging markets it's negative because essentially what's going to happen is you issue more treasuries the federal reserve rolls off treasuries and people will go to treasuries and crowd everyone else out um as damien and i discussed rich what do you make of that argument well, the interesting thing for me, and it's it's something that I think you and I have touched upon as well before, uh, uh, John, is that um, cash because of the, because of the, the move sharply higher in short end U.S. rates is that cash has actually become an asset class in and of itself. 
And I think this is all part and parcel of the same thing is that yeah. for, for, for U.S. investors, domestic money markets, domestic bond markets are becoming quite attractive as these yields go higher. And, and it does make sense that that will crowd out other investments outside the U.S. because if it, and, and you know, I guess there's a home bias there, right? So U.S. investors would much rather not take on the exchange rate risk and, and just invest in their own uh, in their own bond and money markets. So yeah. I think these developments are all. I think outside the U.S., people are watching them for the implications um, globally. But within the U.S., it's an interesting dynamic that's really been developing. Yeah, Rich, I think there is this concern that the U.S. economy could be overheating. Um, Deutsche Bank's Torsten Slock writing about this recently, and the chart that everyone's looking at is unemployment rolling over and job openings in the United States rolling up. If unemployment is low and there's a lot more job openings, basically it is the employee that has the leverage and not the employer. And what typically happens when the employee has leverage is that wages go up. Are we getting to the point, Rich, where you do start to feel the US economy could be an inflection point and that we're heading towards a a heating, an overheating? It feels like we've been at this inflection point before in the past five or six years as well, and it hasn't really materialized. Now, is this time different? Possibly it is. Yeah. But um, I think there are enough forces at work to, to keep wages from racing too high uh, in order for the, you know, the economy to overheat, the Fed to really have to step on the, on the accelerator to, to, with, with rate rises. Um, and, and look, at the end of the day, it's probably not, it's not awful news for the U.S. economy to actually see wages rising a little bit, because if, if there's one thing that, that's been the, the one perplexing thing of the past 10 years with all this accommodative monetary policy is that a lot of people said the Phillips curve is dead and that we're yeah. not getting the wage uh, rises that we should be getting. I don't think they're going to run away to the upside, John, but I think a little bit of wage growth is probably a positive thing. Well, these are the numbers. 6.1 million people unemployed in the United States. 6.7 million job openings. Um, remarkable stats coming from the U.S. economy. Guys, you're going to stick with me. Richard Jones, FX and rate strategist at Bloomberg, alongside Damien Sassauer, EM credit strategist for Bloomberg. Next up on the program, Damien's been doing some research on trade. So we're going to talk trade dynamics, what's been happening and the politics of that, not just on what it means for the United States and China, but what it means for Germany too. Joining us from the heart of Berlin, of course, Richard Jones. So we'll get his perspective as well. For our listeners across the capital, from New York for London, this is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Just gone 5.18 in the city at the close today. A decent day of gains on a FTSE 100. Some minor gains across the continent as well. Up about a third of 1% at the close on the FTSE. Sterling stronger as well against a weaker dollar against the bulk of G10. Cable reclaiming a 134 handle. 134.10, the pound against the US dollar there. Up about a tenth of 1%. Globally speaking, the main event still trade. The United States trade deficit falling to its lowest level since September. Maybe that's good news as the US and China continue to haggle over a deal that would avert a trade war. Bloomberg's learned that China has agreed to buy $25 billion more of US goods this year, among them oil, coal and farm products. Meanwhile, the Trump administration is finalising a deal to allow Chinese telecom maker ZTE to resume purchases from American suppliers. ZTE, of course, was cut off for violating a sanctions agreement. It's a story that affects everyone, including Richard Jones and 
in Berlin, our FX and rate strategist at Bloomberg, <laughs> Damien Sassauer, EM credit strategist for Bloomberg as well, joining us to walk us through how this is hurting potentially emerging markets. Rich, I want to begin with you. As we head towards the G7, Chancellor Merkel will be there representing Germany. And with China very much in the spotlight, it's easy to forget that one of the biggest trade surpluses on the planet actually comes from Germany. How are the Germans preparing for what could be a head-on clash with the President of the United States? There's a lot of nervousness here, John. There's no question. And I think a lot of the uh, softer uh, sentiment data that we've seen in, in Germany in, in the first and in, in first quarter, certainly, and into the second quarter, in addition to some of the hard data, I mean, the GDP growth in the first quarter of this year was considerably lower than it was in each of the quarters last year. And I think that's all uh, part and parcel of the fact that people are really concerned about a, a proper trade war kicking off. And, uh, and as a result, I think that... Um, there's there's a, a feeling here that they want to be committed to free trade. It's something that that is uh, the cornerstone of, of of Germany's economy. I think it's something that there's a, a lot of allies globally. Yeah. When the United States is heading in a different direction, it's very very difficult to offset that with 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 that sort of view. And the United Kingdom, of course, with the Brexit talks, showing that it's very difficult to come to any kind of agreement with Europe. Never mind the United States and and the rest of the world. Rich for the Germans. Is there an understanding, politically speaking, that they need to show that they are open to trade deals? Does this make it easier for the Brexiteers to get what they want out of Germany and the rest of Europe? I think probably the opposite. And I think that, you know, for, for, for Europe, uh, there, there's a very much a, a view that that uh, Brexit is something that will, will sort of serve to weaken the unity within the European Union. So as a result, I think on trade and I think on a lot of issues, there's going to be a solidarity there. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I think the whole Italian situation kind of complicates that a little bit. I don't think that you're going to get the European Union uh, uh, trying to accommodate Britain. They're going to try and, and, and get the best deal possible for themselves. And and as a result, show to the Italians who, and I, you know, I think Euroscepticism in Italy is is probably the highest in the continent, showing that you know Absolutely. it's not really the best idea to leave the European Union and, and the euro itself. So that's the trade dynamic in Europe. Let's talk about the trade dynamic across emerging markets. Damien, I know you and the team over at Bloomberg Intelligence have been doing a lot of work on this. Um, walk me through what you found. So, yeah, I mean, look, you know, we have we have uh, Wilbur Ross and U.S. negotiators in China this week, and China's going to be announcing its trade data come the end of this week. And and look, you know, it's got to come from somewhere, right? So if China's reporter reportedly offering to increase U.S. imports by $25 billion this year, uh, and by the way, that's well short of Trump's demand for $200 billion over two years, right? Um, it's got to come from somewhere. So, you yeah. know, you look at bilateral trade, um, you know, you know, you know trade imbalances between you know developed and emerging markets in China and 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 intra EM and what you find is that South Korea and Brazil kind of stand out to me and 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 our team as you know areas where if China did need to make concessions to the US it, it would leave those two countries vulnerable and let me tell you what i mean i mean if you look at South Korea's trade plus with China it's driven by demand for electrical components right yet you know, since that 2017 boycott, right, when uh, with the THAAD and the missiles being installed and what have you, you know, the Sino-Korean relations have been, yeah, they've just been, um, they've soured. And that leaves uh, them open to substitution to U.S. chip manufacturers. And that can be, you know, a good thing for the U.S. and a bad thing for uh, for South Korea. And then certainly in Brazil, what you find is that, you know, um, you know, 
if if you were indeed going to have to substitute uh, consumption of soy, which Brazil obviously you know produces a lot of, to the U.S., that's going to hit them where it hurts. And, and and Brazil's not in a good place right now, given where we what, what we what we've just seen, right? So yeah. So I think those two countries stand out to us as being um, a little bit at risk. These seem like minor issues at the moment, Damien. And I don't want to downplay or, or demean or diminish any of the significance of any of these things, but it frustrates me when I hear people compare the current situation to Smoot-Hawley in the 1930s when the average import tariff in the United States was around about 40%, yeah. and the average import tariff now, I believe, is in the low single to, to mid-digits um, for the United States, and likewise for Europe as well. It is not the 1930s, and we're nowhere near it, are we? No, no. And, and look, I mean, this is the thing. People point to China, and they think China is this big, bad, you know, that they're taking advantage of everyone. But China trade imbalances don't extend to, to everyone, right? I mean, we count seven, South Korea, Malaysia, Philippines, South Africa, Chile, Peru. They all have trade surpluses with China. So it's, it's not a one-way street, right? And then if you look at, for example, the two countries in EM with the largest trade deficits, India and Turkey, respectively, you know, it's, it's exactly the opposite, right? You see that China imports play a very large role in driving those deficits that much higher. And so, you know, what, what I think, you know, is probably just going back to Rich and yourself and how this impacts Europe and many of your listeners, it comes down to what I saw last week with, with Trump's kind of proposal to slap a 25% tax on, on, yeah. on autos, right? And that's really aimed at the China-Mexico trade relationship, right? And so, but 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 the ancillary impact to Germany, right? And to and to the CE3, you know, Czech, Hungary, and 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 Poland would be would would be devastating, right? So I, I mean you're right. He's not he's playing with fire here. Um and and you know the impact is going to be significant if it does get pushed through and we do end up, you know, emerging into a trade war. Damien Sessa, EM credit strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Great to catch up with you to get the uh, perspective from emerging markets alongside Richard Jones, our FX and rate strategist out of Berlin, joining us for Bloomberg. Gents, great to catch up with you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Coming up on the programme, we bring it from London and Europe to New York, where we'll run you through the latest in the world of technology. Tech stocks just on fire right now. All-time highs despite some negative headlines. We'll run you through that next. You're listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to you all. 5.30 in London, at the close of their decent Dana gains on the FTSE, up about a third of 1% in the FX market. A weaker dollar helping out sterling to a second straight day of gains, 134.17 on cable. That's the pound against the US dollar, up by just over a tenth of 1%. As we close out Wednesday, the gilt market shapes up as follows. Yields higher by nine basis points to 1.374%. A global bond market sell-off sparked seemingly by an ECB determined to unwind QE and the chief economist at the European Central Bank announcing plans for a formal discussion of that at next week's meeting. So that should give you a feel of this market then. Let's get you up to speed on the top stories. Here's Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much, Jonathan Farrell. Lots going on. U.S. stocks flying today and a top American financial regulator has delivered a strong warning that American scrutiny of initial coin offerings is just getting started. SEC Commission Chairman Jay Clayton speaking at a conference in New York said digital token sales issuers have, quote, taken bags of cash to the border. Two British retailers are set to open new European outposts to protect themselves from potential Brexit fallout. C&J Clark, that's the seller of Clark Shoes, plans to open a distribution center in continental Europe to shield itself from potential tariffs. And the Hut Group Limited, which sells beauty, wellness, and luxury 
products online, is constructing a, fa constructing a facility in Poland. Barclays says the chances of Italy leaving the European Union are lower than an England victory at the so Soccer World Cup that's set to kick off in Russia. Last time England, by the way, won the World Cup 1966. Latest from the news desk, Jonathan Farrell, back to you. you John, that, John like, wouldn't you know, remember that, would you? Every listener in London knows this because every World Cup, 1966, just gets rammed down your throat. Uh, with a hundred, you're so right about that. And and you know what? Is it going to happen again? Eventually, yes, it will happen I, again. I will imagine it eventually. This year? I strongly doubt Charlie, it. Charlie, can you help Luke Cower out from Bloomberg, who joins us around the table? Luke is looking summertime fresh, and he's ready to get on a plane to go to Prague. You going yes. to Prague? Prague via Moscow. Can, can you help him out with foreign exchange? Because well, apparently, for anyone in North America, it's difficult to change your money. No, it, it, well, yes and no. You know, I, I I hope that he's loaded up with currency already because it's better to do it than having a gun to your head when you actually have to do it. But uh, just be on the lookout for something I was talking about called dynamic currency conversion. And that is where a credit card is recognized as being from an American bank. They will go ahead and decide that you want to pay in U.S. dollars. Yeah, they'll give you the choice. And they'll they? give you the choice. Well, they're supposed to give you the choice. And what happened to me and why I ended up looking this up and researching it is that they didn't give me the choice. So what happened? And so what happened was I said, I'm sorry, I don't want to pay in U.S. dollars. I want to pay in sterling. I want to pay in whatever local currency that in the country that I'm in. And as a result, then my credit card issuer, a bank that I do business with, is then charging me at a rate that I understand and a rate that I know, as opposed to somebody else who's giving me a rate that I don't know and hitting me up with a 3.5% surcharge for the privilege. So I think in London, we're a little bit more sort of open to foreign exchange because we are used to going abroad and spending different the currencies. The capital of foreign exchange, yeah, too. And, you know? and it is the capital of global foreign exchange. And in the United States, there's just sort of this clueless approach to changing money. They do it at the airport. You know what? As a Brit, we joke. <laughs> we joke about people that change money at the airport. Have I told you my story, though, if I actually made money doing foreign a foreign exchange trade at how, the airport? How did you do it? What did you do? Uh, the Bank of Canada, January, uh, no, this would have been last year's July, rate yeah. hike. Uh, Tim Hortons at the airport on the Wednesday coming back, layover in Toronto. They didn't change and update their foreign exchange from the start of day. Canadian wow. dollar went on a tear. I paid in U.S. dollars and got the amount in Canadian dollars back. <laughs> that would have been more than the U.S. dollars I paid for. So I got a free donut at Tim Hortons. There we go. Should, I, money, should, should, I, should, should I tell you an even better story of that kind of trade? So when Euro Swiss fell through the 120 floor and it dropped like 10, 15% and just gapped lower, then gapped lower, I heard a story about a really smart individual that ran out of work around the corner to the Bureau de Change. And of course, they had Swiss francs. And he went up to the, de the desk and he said, give me all the Swiss francs wow. you've got and I'll buy all your Swiss francs. And of course, this is happening in real time and they haven't changed their rates yet. How does that can happen? You, can you imagine how quickly we went from 120 down towards parity. This individual goes to the Bureau de Change, loads up on Swissies, and then of course, instantly he's made like 20% on the spot.
because they've got the cash there, Charlie. That, that, that's right. more than and, free donut. That's that is more than a free donut. <laughs> and I think he was probably um, dealing in some significant size as well. And, and the best part of all of this is, is hearing Luke Kawa, who is from Canada, bring up Tim Hortons, which I think is just Which, of course, the last time we did Michael McKee, I sat there and I said, what is Tim Hortons? You did. You've since educated and I yourself. Still, well, I oh, you know, I, Tim I, Hortons was a famous athlete that opened what? What was it? Don't it was, it, job, yes. It was, right, okay, yeah. and then someone bought them. Who bought them? Uh, well, eventually, uh, on, eventually. They own Wendy's. They bought, they yes. bought Wendy's. They bought Wendy's, then who mm. bought them? Oh, 3G slash Burger King okay. is now. Burger, so yeah. Burger King now own Tim Hortons. Yes. Yeah. It's okay. a, Well, it, it's an inversion deal kind of, so it's hard to say who knows who owns who, but yeah. James, I, that was great. I was just, I'm just back from Canada. I should have picked you up some Tim bits. Yeah. Can, can, just one final note on currency sure, conversion. Sure, sure. The only thing worse than doing it at the airport, believe it or not, and there's a worse place to do it, and that is the desk in your hotel. So if you think that you're going to get ripped off yeah, at, at, at the bad. airport, uh, try doing it at the hotel. That's true. I imagine that is bad. Charlie Pellet. Great right, catch my pleasure. We'll see Charlie tomorrow. We'll catch up with Charlie tomorrow. High you, point when, of my day, Jonathan Ferrer. I imagine it is. When do you go to Prague, Luke? I, uh, I'll be leaving here in about two and a half hours. Flight's at seven. Flight's at seven. It, can, just picking up from yesterday, do you care about the kind of plane you're flying on? I nobody I, cares about yes, that. Yes, I want to let him answer. Let him answer. Just say no, and then Charlie I, I can kinda, go. I kind of, I kind of do, but that's just I, no, I really don't like don't. planes in general, and just the fact that I'm from Canada. Whenever I'm flying a Bombardier, and oh. like I, I just know some things that. It's, it's tough to see the way Bombardier operates and feel great about what you're flying on. Do you honestly, Charlie? I, 100%. You, Michael, you, you honestly, you, travel, you, book, you, tra you book a flight and you look... 100% all things being equal, cost, time, arrival, uh, connections or no connections. This is equal to cost, uh, whether it's absolutely. a 747 or Abs not. Absolutely, because you're flying on a long-haul flight from L.A. to Sydney, and, and uh, the, the plane that you're on doesn't have two seats together, you're stuck in coach, then you know what? It makes a huge difference. People absolutely. don't do this. Michael McKee, do you do that? Who do flies you... coach? <laughs> Charlie Pellet does My on point. points. Charlie doesn't even pay, though. He does it with credit card He's points. only going to Sydney to collect the miles, the air miles. <laughs> Keith, well, Michael, don't it, joke. He's done it. Does He's it done matter it. to you? No. It does, it does. It, it, it the type of plane generally does not matter to me. Uh, I'm usually more concerned with when I have to get there. I agree. Should we talk about the time that Charlie Pellet wanted to maintain gold status? So we took a flight to California just for the sake of <laughs> it. Just I, for the sake of it. Honestly, I, got a return flight to California <laughs> just to keep his and points And I spent up. 90 minutes on the ground in L.A., turned around and came back. And, did, and for like, the record. That's uh, 10, 11 hours round trip. Correct. But you know what? If I'd stayed over, it would have killed a whole weekend. So look at it that way. I only killed a Saturday. And for the record, the flight was on a Boeing what 767. What did your wife say when you said, I'm going to go I, do a know, round trip you, to maintain gold status? And you know what? The next time I got the upgrade and she didn't, I, I said, listen, had you done this, you would have, but you know what? I'm a nice guy. I gave her the upgrade. So anyway, it's like my son and wife, they stayed home. I did it. I continued to get the upgrades, but I'm an idiot. I gave them the upgrades instead. Charlie Pellet. Yeah, you're well, an, you're an amazing an idiot. I'm married. Cheers. He's a smart he's, man, right? He's, he's, he's married. You ever hear the one about Matt Miller, Bloomberg's very own out of Berlin, um, putting the, the wife in coach and, and the, the dog, dog in yes. business class <laughs> next door to him. He did it. I've got the photo. But we, we need to note that he is still married. He is still <laughs> married. Um, God bless her for being so patient. Michael McKee and Luke Cower sticking with me. We'll run you through the markets up next. You're listening to The Cable. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio.
Listen to Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. Just gone 5.40 in London. Want to get to the tech story, Facebook and some negative headlines once again. Telling users how their personal data is being shared. More concerns about that. The social network says it had data sharing partnerships with four Chinese device makers, including Huawei and Lenovo. Huawei has been named as a potential security threat. Facebook says its integrations with the Chinese companies were controlled from the start. Michael McKee joining us, our international economics and policy correspondent, and Luke Cower, Bloomberg's cross-asset reporter at Bloomberg News. Um, Michael, it's going to be another thing that global politicians Mm -hmm. in Europe, in the United States, are going to be looking at Facebook and saying, what are you doing? Yeah, saying is the thing. I mean, doing something about it, that's a whole other question. Yeah. You know, it... This is also old in the sense that they've been doing it for years. They started this when they weren't, uh, when they didn't have apps and they were developing directly with the the makers. And it's obviously not a good thing. It isn't clear exactly what data they have. Any kind of data, mass data you share with the Chinese, you have to assume could be, probably is being used for nefarious purposes. Uh, The point is, stop it now. The real point is, they don't tell people what they're doing with their data. They, you know, Nobody knew their data was going to the Chinese. On the other hand, raise your hand if you care. I mean, the people who sign up with Facebook know they're giving their lives away. And they don't. the public doesn't seem to be as outraged as the politicians. Yeah, it's a good point. You don't see it hurting the bottom line of the companies either at the moment, Luke. Um, the stock might be down today by about 1.5%. But global tech, U.S. tech stocks, are just on fire, Luke. Regardless of the negative headlines around them, they are really lighting up the market. Uh, yeah, yeah. If you look off the the April lows, the there's seven stocks that have really carried the Nasdaq 100 to fresh record highs. It's the the six biggest stocks in the index, uh, plus Netflix. So Fang, Microsoft, Intel, Apple. Uh, it's fairly concentrated, and kind of what we're seeing today is a as a bit of a rotation in which a lot of these names are overbought, so maybe we can let banks take the lead a little more and give these guys some some time to rest. That's been the 27 story that right now is starting to reassert itself in, in 2018. Looking at the tech situation, though, it's not just an expansion of multiples, Luke. You and I have gone back and forth on this. It's actually some earnings, and I just wondered to what extent, and it's a question I've explored through this week, Are we still conditioned by events of 18 years ago where we don't look at companies at record highs and think, great, what's the earnings story? What's the secular growth story? Why are we here? We look at earnings on one side of the story and then look at the the price action and just say, yes, there's something must be wrong here. The Nasdaq's at a record high. Something must be wrong. I, I definitively think there's there's an aspect of that in markets. It is it is not a beloved tech rally. We we talked about this earlier. In terms of demand for options, I would offer upside for the for the Nasdaq right now. You're not seeing you know crazy demand for that uh, as as inferred by their implied volatility. At the same time, there's also this burgeoning or growing narrative, it grows whenever the stock prices go up, that a lot of these companies, especially these big ones, are somehow immune to the whims of the business cycle. Yeah. And I'm sorry, so many of them are advertising based. And when like when consumer <laughs> Including demand, Facebook. When consumer demand is hit and when like 
when that part of the modulation of the business cycle uh, asserts itself at any one point in time, yeah, they're, they're going to underperform, right? Like they're, they're not going to be acting like defensive stocks and consumer discretionary in a downturn. I would be shocked if that happened. I think you're raising a really good point. Speaking of the economy, the president, Michael McKee, you'll like this one. And we'll save you a little bit of time <laughs> to talk about it next up. You know what I'm about to read? Um, the president says the U.S. enjoys the strongest economy it's ever had. Um, do you want to talk about that in a minute? <laughs> Rather amazing statement, but um, sure. Michael we, McKee. I mean, it's asking a lot to talk about the president. Luke Cower, sticking with me. Next up on the program, we'll run you through the events over the next week, with the main one being the G7. It's the countdown to the G7 and a chat about the global economy next. You're listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. Our thoughts go out to the 120 firefighters tackling a fire on the roof of the Mandarin Oriental Hotel. We hope everyone is safe, of course. That adjoins the, the luxury One Hyde Park apartment project in, in Knightsbridge. Currently, 20 fire engines being used to fight the blaze. This according to the London Fire Brigade on, on Twitter. We've seen unverified images, videos carried on social media showing a tall plume of smoke rising there's a, from there's the property. A, there's a story here that the smoke is no longer visible so they may be getting it knocked down interesting good the hotel's been renovated um as part of an upgrade that was due to be completed in the third quarter of of this year um i imagine that renovation and those plans have been battered after this event um representatives for the luxury hotel reached out to by bloomberg um did not immediately answer the phone or reply to emails seeking comments so keep an eye on that and our thoughts of course with everyone involved with the blaze in london at the moment just to run you through some of the headlines and some of the things on the day ahead and days ahead u.s jobless claims on thursday uh euros eurozone gdp tomorrow as well then friday eia crude oil inventory report and the big one the g7 leaders summit in quebec michael mckee are you going uh, no, I'll be here uh, analyzing it, breaking it down for you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Is it going to be the case that the United States is isolated or does the president bring everyone together with a speech of hope? Uh, it's uh, it's not America first. It's America alone when they get to Canada. Um, there is no love lost for the Trump administration among the other nations. I mean, the Canadians, as nice a people as they are, including Mr. Kawa, uh, have finally given up and Justin Trudeau has started to say bad things about Donald Trump and, and the U.S. trade policy. So it's it's not going to be a fun experience for him now. He, yeah. may enjoy, he may enjoy telling people off. You remember when he went to Italy last year? Yeah. And, and he walked alone and nobody would in, hang in, out with him? In Taormina, Sicily. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I think that would be, that, that would be a good precursor uh, to what's going to happen this time. How is this playing out in Canada right now, Luke? People are... are to to some degree, and I'm obviously have a, have a bias here. People are really upset, and uh, they're they're very upset, obviously, about the what are the they most of, what are they most upset about the use of national security. This right. notion that the world's longest undefended border uh, between two nations that have a history of of fighting overseas together about you know getting involved in faraway combats because they share certain ide ideals. 
people are righteously very furious about this. And in Trudeau's government, there's one of their kind of common themes is, you know, don't be mean, don't be a jerk. That's something they instill in their staff every day. And you start to see it leak out on Twitter, uh, things they're sharing, things they're retweeting among the staff. People have been let off the hook and they're right. starting to speak their mind on what they think about this. So help me understand how this plays out with the electorate. The president of the United States is very conscious of how his message plays out with the electorate to his base, to the court, to the Republicans, essentially. And he does very well with the Republicans. Still, his approval rating within his own party, Mike, is still very high, isn't it? In the uh, United States. Uh, record levels, like 80 percent uh, so, approval you know, rating. Highest since uh, George W. after 9-11. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah, this combative stance works for the president. What works for Justin Trudeau right now? Well, what happened is, uh, if you saw on Meet the Press, Justin Trudeau mentioned that he had that he might show some flexibility on agriculture. There was no follow up. That's a great thing to follow up on because Justin Trudeau doesn't have room to offer flexibility on agriculture. And righteously, even though the use of that one word freaked a heck of a lot of Canadian farmers and farmers groups out, and they're already saying, we're very worried. We don't know what this flexibility is. Are you going to sacrifice us in these trade talks? So the room to maneuver on agriculture and the idea that Canada substantively bringing much to the table on that and the idea that Canada has anything resembling fair trade, or free trade, rather, in agriculture, those are all things that seem very far from reality to me yeah. right now. So domestically, it's it's a good unity story for Trudeau, but playing it in agriculture, very difficult. It's a rather crude way of doing what I'm about to do, and Michael McKee will probably tell me off. But just based on GDP growth currently and forecast for growth, the United States goes to the G7 in the stronger position, doesn't it, Mike? Just based on the relative domestic economies that these leaders will represent. Sure, uh, the United States has the strong. This quarter, it appears we will have the strongest growth. If, if which is probably the most the, the most accurate numbers. way of putting. If that we get statement. the GDP numbers that are forecast for the eurozone, they will have been higher than the U.S. for the same time period. But right now, we're running at about three and a half percent, which is uh, which is better than the two and a half they're forecasting for tomorrow. For, uh, but that was for the previous quarter. Yeah. So, uh, but it obviously the U.S. was ahead in the cycle, and has a stronger economy. We have the world's biggest economy, unless you put all the European Union together. Uh, we have this, the largest economy in the world. We have, we have by far the biggest military. So the U.S. has a lot of reasons why it should be leading the world. Uh, that's what the rest of the world can't understand. Why are you dumping on us? Why are you pushing us away yeah. when you should be leading? You're making us have to lead ourselves and, and come up with our own plans instead of uh, going along with what you think is right. So in Canada, just to wrap up, Luke, there was this great hope with Prime Minister Trudeau that he would bring in infrastructure spending ahead of the curve everyone was asking for it no one was doing it the prime minister wanted to bring it into into reality um where are we in the canadian economy now uh Basically, uh, in terms of real estate activity, which has been huge for Canada, uh, the activity part in terms of transactions, uh, sales volumes, price growth, that has slowed down dramatically. That's partly by design, rising rates, uh, new mortgage restriction, home building still good. Infrastructure is actually really just starting to be built now. Like that, that impulse still has legs. Um, oil, don't know if we're getting much fresh. I investment in Canada, Surprisingly, beyond this NAFTA huge overhang, investment has been great. It's been phenomenal. New export orders 
turning up. So it's like these tariffs are a fly in the ointment for candidates. Things still look kind of good. Except look, for the on. fact there are no Canadian teams in them. Oh, come, come on. on. Just get that jab in. Come on. <laughs> look, look how I have a really safe trip. Um, Thank you. We hope you work out your foreign exchange story and um, visit the Austrian Central Bank and, and let me know how that goes if you visit Vienna. Luke Cow, a cross-asset reporter at Bloomberg News and Michael McKee, international economics and policy correspondent for Bloomberg. Luke Cow, doing a tour of Germany, Austria and Prague as well, I believe. Good yes. for you. Luke Cow, have fun. Michael McKee, thank you. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio.